the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. And what I'm struck by in this, because I've heard Bible stories all my life, if you ever would just read that story on its own out of context of the Bible, it's, it's a little unique in that Jesus' approach to the demonic realm is very different than most people's approach to the demonic realm, isn't it? Uh, our culture, our society talks about that whole realm. They use it in, a, in, a, in an, um, an atmosphere of fear, trying to strike fear into people, trying to get people scared or whatever, and it's something that they play with and they don't understand the dynamics of it. But Jesus is kind of matter-of-fact about it. He's, and most of the time when he deals with the, with the demonic, now there are times when the demons manifest, and I'm, I'm assuming that in this particular situation they say while they're going a man who was demon possessed that's the first thing it says well how do you know that what's that all about and could not talk so um there's this issue of what what the bible calls demon possession and i know there's been so much discussion and back and forth uh, about that whole terminology and things get all kinds of hung up christians get all in all ways hung up on that um, what I want to f- just focus on this morning is Jesus' perspective toward the demonic realm and how he handled it and why and how we need to handle it because we will come into confrontation with things, not necessarily with people manifesting, if you know what I mean by that, but we had a group of people that went to Cleansing Stream yesterday, and Cleansing Stream is a ministry where they deal with baggage and junk from the past, where they uh, go through a time of confession and, and the Lord sets folks free from things that have been in their past or areas of sin in their lives. And we encourage that. We believe that there's so much that we need to become free from. And there's really a, a displacing of, of demons in, that, in those kinds of ministry, but it's not necessarily, usually not, most of the time not, a demonstration or a manifestation of demonic. It's just confession, take authority, and they leave. And most of the time, Jesus dead took authority, the demons left. And he's not rattled by it. He's not shaken by it. Now, just as a primer, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but when I was about 21 years old, my sister brought a friend home from college who manifested in our house several times. And we, we grew up in a conservative, evangelical background. We had no idea what to do. Um... But there was this confrontational deliverance that went on in our, my parents' living room three different occasions, and we were ever, never really able to help the girl because it kept coming back, and we didn't know what we were missing. And so I was on a search <laughs> the rest of my life to figure out why, because as I read the Bible, we should have authority over those things. We should be able to set people free. And there were times that the girl, after all the session was over, this wrestling match, I mean, it was like a supernatural wrestling match that went on, she had received Jesus as her Savior, but there was still this outworking of whatever. And so I'm going to share with you my understanding of this, and I don't want to get into it real very deeply because we spent a lot of time on it, but I, how, can we, how can we approach this whole thing in, in the same way that Jesus did with confidence, without fear, with here's what you do, <laughs> Okay. Because it's not something to be fearful of. The demonic realm is not something to be fearful of. And if we are, we've got a problem <laughs> that the Lord can take care of and help us with. 
So I, I look at his attitude and his demeanor, and I want to approach it with the same way. Uh, it says that the demon was driven out. What it actually means, it was expelled, it was plucked out, it was sent away. It just, it had to leave. And so that's the picture that we want. Um, but I, I want to start in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, and it says this, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. As human beings, we're made up of three parts. We're a spirit, soul, and body. And go to the next, I think it should be the next slide. I hope you can see this. It's, it may not be that clear. Um, we're a spirit, soul, and body. And our spirit basically is comprised of intuition, intuition or wisdom, conscience, and communion. Intuition uh, is like women's intuition. They know things without knowing things. That nobody told them something, but they just know. Okay, Intuition is that, and it really it's a revelatory gift. If you talk about word of knowledge, word of wisdom, that's intuition. Uh, conscience is the knowledge of right and wrong, and most people who haven't had consciences totally destroyed, know right and wrong, whether or not they've been taught right and wrong. There's that sense of right and wrong. And then communion. Communion is that aspect of our spirit that's able to have fellowship with God. But we know that in the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost communion with God, and their conscience was messed up, and their intuition was damaged, and there was a, there was a, a destruction that came in the human being in the spirit. And so the human spirit was separated from God's spirit in the fall. And every one of us is born separated from God. Our soul is our mind, will, and emotions. It's our thinking, our, our, our um, decision-making, and our emotions. And so there's distinct parts. And I get this from um, John Paul Jackson. And I think it may be originated with the Watchman Nee, this particular description. And our, our body, oh, I forgot to change this. I made an error. It's supposed to be blood. Not, not bluke. <laughs> our body is our <laughs> flesh, blood, and bone. So here's what happens when someone trusts Christ as their Savior. Their spirit is born again. Intuition is brought back. Conscience is revived. And communion with the Father is restored. And so if you think of a person... When they trust Christ as their Savior, their spirit is born again. That's the part of them that receives the, the seed of the word, the pneuma, the sperma of the word. And that spirit is born again. It's made new. A new creation comes in the spirit. The soul, our mind, our will, and our emotions still carry the baggage of our past. It still carries the old thought processes. It still carries the old emotions It still carries some of the decision-making. And why do I say that? Because we still sin. And we still give in to lies of the enemy. And so the enemy actually gets access. See, here's the difference between what I think, and I'm not sure that I understand it completely. The difference between demon possession and being afflicted by the demonic. Because some people say, well, Christians can't be possessed, and I would say that too. But Christians can be affected by, influenced by, oppressed by the demonic realm, depending on how much we give in to their lies in our soul. We give them access to sin. The demonic realm is empowered by sin. It's what they feed on. It's their food. Um, 
And the Bible says that our souls are in the process of sanctification or in the process of being restored. And so our, our spirits are reborn, made new, but our souls need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, washing the water of the word. We need all those things for our soul to be transformed so that we become more Christ-like. And so that's the process of sanctification, the process of restoration. Psalm 23, he restores my soul. God comes to restore us, to make us new. Now, I want to talk about how the enemy gains access to our soul and how we deal with it. It's through sin, and the Bible calls that kind of demonic influence strongholds, footholds. Um, Ephesians chapter 4 Verse 26 and 27 says, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. That word foothold is the Greek word topos, which from which we get the word topography, which means land, territory, a region, it can mean. And so Paul is saying, don't give in to anger. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't give the enemy territory. Don't give him place. Don't give him anywhere to lay down roots. Now, Ed Silvoso has a description of what a spiritual stronghold is, and that's one of these slides too. A spiritual stronghold is a mindset impregnated with hopelessness that causes us to accept as unchangeable situations that we know are contrary to the will of God. And so a stronghold is something that is, has become embedded in our thought process, has become embedded in the way that we think, and it affects the way that we respond, but it's not necessarily godly response. Does anybody ever have ungodly responses to things, to situations? <laughs> Thank you. I'm not the only one. Why is that? If I'm born again, if I'm a new creation, why is that? Well, it's because my spirit is perfect. But my soul still carries some of the baggage of the past. And that needs to be taken care of. Another description or a definition of a stronghold that I like is by Francis Frangipan. It says this. A spiritual stronghold is a demonically induced pattern of thinking. Specifically, it is a house made of thoughts which has become a dwelling place for satanic activity. Well, what does that mean? I mean, sometimes all that can be, okay, I'm trying to make sense of that. Let's say as a little child, my mother used to say to me, why are you doing that? You're never going to learn to do that right. You're never going to. You're, you're, you know what? You're just a loser. You're just a loser. What's wrong with you? Parents say things to their kids sometimes without realizing the effect that it has on them. And that child will grow up thinking, I'm a loser. I'm a loser. And next thing you know, they become an adult. And something happens at work. And guess what the enemy whispers to him? You're a loser. You're a loser. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm a loser. Okay? Well, what does God say about you? What does God say? You're not a loser. You're a child of the king. And, but here's what happens. We have these thoughts, these um, house made of thoughts in our mind, in our mind, in that diagram, in our soul. 
we have, it's like a grid pattern through which we filter everything that happens to us. And we interpret life by those thought patterns. And we want God to bless us, but we have these thoughts that are contrary to the word of God. We have these ideas about ourselves. We have ideas about other people. We have ideas about life. We even have ideas about God that are contrary to the word of God. And it, it filters, it flavors, it colors our thinking. And that's a stronghold. Now, <laughs> some people don't like this illustration, but this is just, I just love this illustration. You know what dust mites are? <laughs> you know what dust mites are? They're those little bugs that, what do they eat? They feed on dead skin cells. Where do you find most of them? Well, beside the dust balls that float around the house. In your mattress and in your pillow. Because dust mites eat dead skin I can say that. Dead skin cells. And then they, can I say this? They poop it out. And that's where dust comes from. So what do dust mites feed on? Dead flesh. What does a demonic realm feed on? Dead flesh. Now, Jude 6, verse Jude 6, says, And the angels who do not keep their positions of authority but abandon their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. The, the demonic realm that followed Satan in his fall are chained in everlasting chains. That's what the Bible says. They're chained in darkness. Well, then how do they get any authority? That darkness that they're chained in is moral darkness. So what do I do when I sin? I give them room to maneuver. I give them a place. I give them a foothold. What happens when a large group of people in a city or region sin? It empowers the enemy. It gives him room. It gives him place. The Bible tells us that Jesus, when he went to the cross, he stripped the enemy of all his authority and power. Where does he get it from? He gets it from people. He steals it from people by committing them, getting them to sin. The enemy entices you, entices you, entices you to fall in some way. And you fall. And he goes, you stupid idiot. What are you doing? You're not doing what you... You know, he, not only does he get us to sin, but then he pounds on us on top of it. When we sin, we give him place. And the more we sin habitually, the bigger the stronghold becomes in our lives. There's a couple places where... A number of places where strongholds come from. One is habitual sin. One sin is generational Sin is passed down from one generation to the next. We get that from Exodus chapter 20. It's in the Ten Commandments. The sins of the fathers are visited on or laid on the children of the third and fourth generation. And I believe that what that means is that there are sins that I inherited from my father, grandfather, great-grandfather, my ancestors. I've inherited weaknesses in the same place where they gave in to sin. only gets worse. But we don't have time to get into that. That's the second place. It comes generationally. Third place is through trauma. Trauma, very often, either as a childhood, whether it's some kind of abuse or an accident, um, and the enemy comes in and he gets us to be fearful and gets other ramifications of that same issue. He gets a stronghold in us. And so we have a pattern or a way of thinking that's contrary to the word of God that's bombarding us bombarding our soul, bombarding our mind, our will, and emotions, and keeping us bound so that we can't be free. Now, this particular fellow in this story who was demon-possessed and blind, 
or mute. I'm sorry, he's mute. Um, I don't know if he was, it doesn't say whether he was mute from birth or not. But it does say that when Jesus drove the demon out, he could, he could speak. And of course we know that demons can, can cause sickness and illness. Um, demonic spirits have the name of their character. So this was a mute spirit. There's spirits of fear. There's um, spirits of abuse. Whatever the spirit's character is, that's its name. Um, and so Jesus drives this spirit out. Okay, so there's a difference. There's a difference between Jesus' approach, a slight difference to the way Jesus approached the demonic and the way we do. Think about this for a minute. If we were to look at Jesus, spirit, soul, and body, spirit perfect, soul perfect, body, subject to the earth system, Jesus' soul was perfect. Perfect. There was no place, there was no foothold that the enemy had in him. He told his disciples that the enemy was coming, Satan was coming, but he has no place in me. He has no topos in me. He has no um, foothold in me. It's interesting in the Old Testament, when it talks about the verses about uh, repentance, Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, Solomon prayed, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. I will heal, heal their land. I'll heal their topography. <laughs> I'll, I'll heal their region. I'll, see, I, I think that that's a play that the Lord wants us to grasp, that it's, he will heal the inside of us, if my people. There's another verse that, that talks about confession, Prior to that, and it's in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 39 and following. And I really like this one because this encapsulates for me the, the process that we need to go through to make ourselves okay. Those of you who are left will waste away in the lands of their enemies because of their sins, also because of their ancestors' sins. You see that? Because of their ancestors' sins, they'll waste away. But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, I will remember the land. I will remember the land. And so we have a soul that is contaminated by sin. What's the solution? It's the confession of our sins and the sins of our ancestors. Because that's what breaks the curse. If the Bible says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, that the sins of the fathers are passed down to the third, fourth generation, that actually gives Satan biblical permission to afflict us, doesn't it? It's actually biblical permission. What takes that permission away? Confessing our sins and the sins of our ancestors. Breaks the legal right that the enemy has over us so that we can stand cleansed. Now, <laughs> the enemy likes to use the stuff from our past to keep yanking us down and yanking us into sin. Through confession, we break the legal right that the enemy has over us. 
But now we need to retrain our brain, and we need to retrain our thinking, and we need to retrain our emotions, and we need to retrain our will to walk in conformity with the Word of God. So how do we do that? Well, it's a process that God calls us to. And that process is by memorizing the Word, by spending time in the Word, and by actually declaring the Word in those verses that have to deal with the area where we have issues. And so we have this process that we're going through, the process of sanctification, the process of coming before God and allowing him to restore our souls. But if we never start that journey, if we never begin, and I'll tell you what, I, I don't like to spend a lot of time talking about the enemy, and I don't like to spend a lot of time talking about curses, but they need to be dealt with. You know what else it says in Exodus chapter 20, and what a beautiful picture. We just talked about that this morning with Judah. The sins of the fathers are past the third and fourth generations, but the righteousness goes on for a thousand generations. And see, that's what I want. I want my soul to be so clean, as as pure as it can possibly be, so that what I transfer, transmit to my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren is that righteousness that goes, the blessings for a thousand generations. And so when I think about Jesus coming into this situation with this man who is demon-possessed and he's mute and he sees him, I have a feeling to a certain... This, this is for me. This is the way I look at it. I think he's able to look into that guy's generational past and he can see all the work that the enemy has done to bring him to a place of bondage. He sees all that. He understands it. And it doesn't, it doesn't make him afraid. There's no fear There's no fear because he knows the authority that he has, and he knows the truth. He knows the truth. See, if we understand the truth, we don't have to be afraid. And he he drives the demon out, and he deals with the issues in that man's life. And I believe that God has called us to be in that same place where we are in the process of sanctification, but we deal with sin on that basis of dealing with it generationally in whatever way, and we look for strongholds. We look for strongholds in our lives. We look for patterns of behavior, of sinful behavior. We look for places where our thinking is not in alignment with the will of God. And we deal with them. And I believe, and and understand me, the way that we confront the demonic realm is to lead people through a time of confession. And when each individual confesses their sin and the sins of their family, they're the ones that break the power of the enemy in their life. I don't do it. Or anyone helping them, they're not the ones that do it. They do it by confession. <laughs> but we don't deal with the demonic realm in our own strength and our own power and our own authority. It's Jesus that does it. We're just his vessels. But the effectiveness of our ministry, the effectiveness of our lives is increased by the amount of purity that we walk in, the amount of holiness, the amount of sanctification. And we're in a process, we're in a process of getting cleaned up, of dealing with the junk so that, and you know what happens as we deal with that stuff? And uh, we should have Mike share his testimony, shared. How many people were there yesterday, Mike? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Can I share just what you, what happened to you? He uh, 
Again, what Cleansing Stream does is they deal with particular topics and they lead everybody through a prayer of confession. And then they go forward for prayer for anointing. And again, just to be able to speak to someone one-on-one and have them pray for them. And, um, Mike was getting ready to go forward and the Lord just gave him a vision of something that happened when he was nine years old. He never thought about it before. Never thought about it before. He goes forward and they said, do you know what you need to pray about? He said, yeah, the Lord showed me a, a, a vow that he made. A, not a good vow. And he said, like that, it was gone. And he said, you know what? He said, I love when, I love when people share things that you know, but without any prompting. He says, you know, I could have gone to counseling the rest of my life and they would have never found that. <laughs> and I go here and that's the first thing the Lord puts his finger on. Yeah. See, that's this process. That's what Cleansing Stream does. That's what we, we, we teach because we don't, understand, we don't always understand the power of confession. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And so it's our speaking out. Our, and what is confession? Confession is coming into agreement with what God says about our sin. Now, you might think that's easy, and I, I can tell you innumerable times we've talked with people, counseled with people, and said, okay, here's an area of sin. You need to confess that sin. Would you just do it now? Just pray to the Lord and confess that sin. And they start praying, and they dance all around confession. And I'll stop them, and I'll say, you need to say, I did this, and it's wrong, and I confess that. Because they'll say, Lord, I'm so sorry that I haven't done what I'm supposed to and I've been here and there. No, just identify the sin and say, I did it. That's what confession is. Confession is coming into agreement with Jesus, what God says about sin. And when we do that, it breaks the enemy's right to mess with us anymore in that area. Breaks it. Does, does away with it. So anyway, when I see Jesus and I see him and his whole attitude toward, toward the demonic, when we understand... The truth, it sets us free. And we don't have to be in fear. We don't have to walk in intimidation. And hopefully, the light and the truth that we walk in, others will see and will be able to bring others to freedom.